This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. We showed up and it was one of the worst rainstorms that California's ever had. It was thundering. It was raining. I bought maybe like four or five piles of wood. We went through it all, like just trying to keep people warm. We lost four or five tents that just got flooded from the rain. We had purchased uh, two 10 by 30 pavilion tents, basically for shade. The wind just picked one of those up, snapped it in half, and threw it away. That first night... I went to bed in tears knowing that that year of prep work was basically all for nothing, that I had spent a whole bunch of money that I basically didn't have. Everyone was miserable. It starts with just taking that leap. Man, you have to work hard. You have to be incredibly smart. Choose something that even if it fails, even if it fails you are going to be proud of it. Does it matter how badly you got beat? Be kind, be kind, be kind. Become a better person, a better leader, a better business. Go for that. <laughs> I'm Samuel Donner, and this is Finding Founders. And this is episode one of our subculture series. Here, we'll deviate from the mainstream and explore communities that you might not have heard of. Some that you might think are weird or out there, but you'll quickly find that these groups will challenge you to shed your preconceived notions and like tap into your ingenuity, creativity, and vulnerability. If you let them in, you might just be able to change your life for the better. What you heard at the top of the episode was John Bassett, co-founder of Twin Mask, describing the chaos of the first LARP game he organized. LARP, if you're unfamiliar with the term, stands for live action role play. It's a mix of a game and a performance, but honestly, I didn't really know at all what it would be like. So to get the full experience, I took a trip down to Twin Mask itself and geared up for a night of LARPing. But before the battle would commence, I had a chance to sit down with John and talk a little bit about how he wound up there. A conversation that would begin, as all good things do, with sugar. Tell me what you had for breakfast this morning. All right. So today I had a steady um, supply of Monster. Some sugar, which is pretty much what we live off of during a, a LARP event. The food that I bought is all Twinkies, Twizzlers, Monsters, uh, candy cereal, pretty much just to getting a sugar high, keeping me from one high to the next till I make it to Sunday. What does it look like on Sunday? A giant crash. You get <laughs> home and you fall asleep for three days. I can imagine. Can you tell me where we are right now? Okay, so we're at Riverview Recreational Park, also known as Cronenberg. It is a renaissance fair that during the off-season we rent. 
So we get the run of effectively a Renaissance village. Can you describe a little bit about our immediate surroundings? All right, well, it's a town. It's a fantasy town. Uh, where we're at this second, we actually use for our death mods. So during night, we frequently will light this with like red lights and we'll have card games set up where whenever we kill another player, like they come in and they actually have to play death to come back to life. When you play death, what, what's the what's the game? <laughs> All right, so the character that I typically play is called Orphan, and he wears a full Venetian uh, carnival mask. So his entire face is hidden. I wear a giant brown robe. I have, you know, black sashes that go down to the floor. And he's kind of a beloved but also terrifying character because he doesn't he doesn't see reality the way that, that you do. You know, he'll be walking through town and he might just kill someone, not because they did anything wrong, but because, I mean, it's almost like a handshake. He's so in tune with death that it's not, it's not a problem, you know, or he's like, oh, you should visit me more. But the players know that that means that they have to die in order to visit him, you know? Mm. Okay. Yeah. I know what you're thinking. Spending your free time playing death might seem just a little downright strange, but for some people taking on a character like this is almost instinctual. For others, it can be even therapeutic. And to back this up even further, renowned psychologist Carl Jung explored the idea that role-playing could serve as a way to get in touch with different parts of your unconscious, something that could potentially lead to a more balanced self. But before John became death and tapped into this part of himself, it was just, well, kind of a nerdy kid exploring his interests. My origin story is a little bit different than most people. I, I basically grew up in a game store. Uh, so there was a little store in Milford, Massachusetts called Gamers Guild. And every day I would, you know, wake up and during the summer I would just go there immediately. And then when school started after school, I would go straight there after school and I'd do my homework there. And so Every RPG in the 90s, every tabletop miniature game, everything, I grew up playing. And then... Who were you playing with and, and who was there? Well, it was a game store, right? So a bunch of people would go there for the purpose of playing role-playing games or tabletop games or whatnot. And some of the people that went to these, the store were LARPers. And those were the people that I more looked up to. And I'm not old enough to play because every LARP has age requirements and most are around 15 or 16 years old. So I'm too young to play. So of course I want to all the more. And, uh, and I'm hearing about the local games and all these amazing stories that they're, they're doing. Yeah. So what, what are you hearing? You know, I knew one guy who he intentionally would walk the trails with his eyes closed during the day so that at night when he can't see the trails, he knew exactly where the holes are, how to run through them, even though he'd be basically night blind, one, running through a forest trail in the dead of night. That must have sounded really <laughs> cool to like, like a kid who was just uh, playing with the board game. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Then uh, a few years later, I moved from Massachusetts to Virginia and... How did it feel like to leave that place? You'd built relationships there if you've been going there after school every day. Well, I was a military brat, so I moved a lot. <laughs> so, uh, so it was bittersweet, but it wasn't the first time. Yeah, as soon as I moved to uh, Virginia, I started high school, was old enough to play. First thing I did was got on the internet, looked up local LARPs, 
you know, message all of them and then, you know, talk to the people who responded back to me. And that's how, that's how I got my start. So what was your first game like? It was so quirky and so bizarre. And as a freshman in high school, it let me vent all this awkward energy. And for me, it was just a healthy environment. You know, it's fairly like anti-drugs. It's, you know, there's a lot of athletic aspects. So it's like pretty good for your fitness. There's a lot of crafting involved. So like you get hands-on skills, like you might be wiring LEDs and sewing things. And um, depending on what your interests are, you're developing a lot of skills that can then be leveraged into other things. What was the perception of your classmates? Um, or was that even something that you could share with them? So it was great. Uh, and by that, I mean, since all of my friends were outside of school, I didn't care about my school friends. And the second that I didn't care about my school friends, then all of a sudden everyone liked me. So it has to do with a weird level of confidence where when I didn't need everyone around me, then they wanted to be near me. And again, it was just kind of nice having friends that weren't tied to the drama that happens in high school. You know, I was fell hard into my hobby. I mean, and years later, here I am running, running my own game. It makes sense that John fell hard into his hobby. He had found a space where he felt welcome. And growing up, that wasn't always guaranteed. It's not unusual for military brats to struggle to find a sense of belonging. But for John, things were different. He knew that no matter where he was, the game store had a community waiting for him. This solid network of mature, like-minded people gave him something that most teens crave, confidence. And because of his passion, John moved up the ranks quickly. So here I was as a high school kid, and my character had amassed enough power and influence where I could point to any person within a, a group of around like 100 adults, right? I could point to one of them and have them executed. That's a lot of responsibility for, for a kid. And um, that confidence that it gave me and the uh, management skills that it gave me uh, very early on definitely helped me throughout college. It helped me out through, um, you know, post-college. How many people are you dealing with in these, in these communities and how, how old is the average person? So most of the people were between uh, 20 to 30, that range. Do you feel like you gained social and organizational skills because of that? And is there any story that sticks out to you that you feel symbolizes those moments? Uh, I guess one was when, um, so later on in college, uh, as I was pulling away more and more, right, my attendance was not as regular as it, it used to be. And so because my character was such a high profile character, the story team worked with me to um, basically come up with a reason for why I hadn't been around. And so what they came up with is like, okay, there's sort of like a plant symbiote that's going around and it's kind of possessing people, almost like, like a pod person sort of thing. Like little plant thing got in my head and is now making me be a bad guy. So it's like, okay. And they, uh, they send me out with a whole bunch of the non-player characters, so the monsters that the players are supposed to fight. And I look around at the other people who are playing the monsters. So in, in most games that we play, everyone takes a shift being the bad guy, as well as you get your chance to be the hero and the main character, too. 
So I look around, and most of the people who happened to be on that uh, NPC shift, the non-player character shift, were all my garrison folks. So these are people who, in real life, I had had plenty of experience fighting side by side with. They were great at following orders, great at just intuitively knowing what they had to do, reading a situation, great, uh, great fighters. So we march up there and the players don't know what to do because, again, they look over, they see me on the other side. And uh, one of the players steps up and he tries to rally people into some sort of like a line. I step forward in front of everyone and I, I blow all of my stats immediately and I kill him right out the door. It was basically like, okay, you want to stand against my army. You want to de- like demonstrate leadership and I'm going to butcher you in front of everyone. And that set the tone of the battle. Um, there's a lot of tactical elements too. When you're doing sword fighting, there's a lot of moving forward and backward and like side to side and like maneuvering that you need to do. If you can't move backwards, then you lost all your mobility and I'm going to kill you easily. Um, so basically, uh, we positioned them, like, backs up against the wall. Start, they started going down like crazy. Uh, they immediately broke. Uh, now we had players, like, abandoning the front line, running away. We killed all the people who <laughs> were left facing us. And to the point where we didn't even have an army to fight against, we, we broke up ourselves and started wandering around looking for the people who were hiding in the woods. You know, it wasn't until, like, the staff came over and they were like, oh, you're starting to... Uh, you're starting to regain your senses <laughs> that because uh, they don't want us to kill everyone. And, and then once they did that, my character in a moment of, uh, of basically being lucid, I pretty much threw my sword away and let them capture me. It's in moments like these when John's detailing his emotions during the game that you can fully understand just how united John is or was with his character. It's as though it's an intrinsic, almost inseparable part of his identity. By transforming into this other person, he had the opportunity to get in touch with his confidence in a different way. Amidst the turbulence of high school, this security and sense of self were essential. And like most people's high school years, things weren't about to get any easier. Why does this game or these games, like, why do they have so much meaning to you? The, the emotions you feel, the, uh, those moments, you know, those, uh, those can be powerful. You know, the emotions are real, whether you're in game or, or in real life. You feel like you feel this emotions more strongly in the game? I don't think you, you feel the emotions stronger or weaker than you do in, in real life. But I do think that, you know, you don't, you don't typically in your day-to-day life have the sensation of, I need to run away from this this monster or I'm going to die, right? You don't typically feel that. I guarantee you that if, um, you know, someone was chasing me in real life with a knife or something, I would, I would feel a lot more scared than I, than I would here. However, here it happens all the time, right? And, and as a matter of fact, as a, as a form of therapy almost, you can potentially face certain fears of yours in a kind of safe, controlled environment. For me, it was never necessarily about fear, but for confidence, it was extremely uh, life-changing. And um, in Massachusetts, Massachusetts wasn't a very good time. You know, I was, I was bullied a lot. 
similar sort of thing. I uh, I moved to Massachusetts from Illinois, didn't know anyone. Most of the people that were nice to me from the get-go were all, you know, nerdier gamer types, right? So um, pretty much people would go pick on our social group, mostly pick on my friends, honestly, and I would end up standing up and then I would become the main target. I would come home pretty much in tears. And uh, I remember a conversation with my mom where I was going over it. I tell her uh, all the details and I'm like, the only reason why I haven't gotten in a fight with any of these kids is because me not wanting to disappoint you and and my dad. And she looks at me and she says, well, uh, I can't help what the school may or may not do, but as far as what'll happen in this house, you won't get in trouble with us if you get in a fight with these people. And my eyes lit up for that. It was it was like a a giant weight had been lifted. And the very next day, same group of kids, they pretty much came up to us, surrounded us, started calling us names, you know, stuff like that. Again, like me being a major focus. And there's a there's a weird psychology, especially when there's a group of people picking on you. A little hint, if you target one of them, it doesn't matter who it is. And you make the fight between you and that person. Instantly, it goes from being a fight between seven people against three to a fight between you and that one person. And those are a lot better odds. So I I picked one person pretty much at random, like pretty much whoever started it. And I I was almost daring them to fight me at that point. And instantly, overnight, it stopped. Like basically, the second that I was willing to take it to the next level, none of those kids were willing to. And when I moved from Massachusetts to Virginia, like I was saying, it was a fresh start for me. And it was kind of great. You know, I started LARPing where, um, you know, some people view it as an escape. It's really not. Um, It's not about escapism, but it is about, um, you know, challenging yourself with with, uh, new situations, new characters. Why do you think people would say it's escapism? For me, that's never really resonated. So, um, so I don't really agree with or understand why some people view it that way, but the general concept of you're going away for a weekend and playing a different character, you know, someone who's not yourself seems like you're retreating into a fantasy world. But for the most part, the character that you're going to be playing is yourself, but with certain features exaggerated. So my first character, the Herman, the gnome character, I was pretty awkward my my freshman year of high school. And that gave me a, you know, Herman was like an exaggeration of that, but it gave me an outlet of that. My character after that was uh, Paladin, like he was a knight. And that's the character that, um, you know, I started running the entire town. You know, I was a leader. It felt great when um, when there was something, uh, you know, like an army marching into town and, and people, my character's name was Damien. They were like, Damien, we need you, you know, and, and feeling that, like knowing that people need you, um, like that gives you a lot of confidence and that sort of confidence stays with you when the game is over. Well, I mean, uh, I, I just think of that story where you stood up to those bullies. It seems like you took that lesson in game and then that in game lesson maybe was solidified and now you have that confidence out of game too why do you think that sense of justice is so important to you i know how much it sucks when um you are in a position of weakness and uh and then other people take advantage of that so it's not a position that i really ever want to be in again and if i see someone doing that like if there's a veteran player who is mistreating a new player New players are sacred in my eyes, you know, like they are the they are the helpless, you know, level one little guy. 
And what they need is veterans setting a positive example and looking out for them. John and his character, by extension, went from the awkward gnome to a town guardsman, keeping others out of harm's way. It was a confidence boost, no doubt, but this time the confidence didn't melt away when he stepped back into everyday life. Like he said, it wasn't an avenue to escape. It was an opportunity to challenge himself, to break out of comfort and familiarity. And slowly, the strength he gained from the game seeped into other areas of his life. Now, he could take those leadership skills, that strategy, and advocate for himself and his friends at school. When it came to LARPing, this was only the beginning. Why did you start, decide to study theater? Uh, I had fun with the department. I was, I was a double major, so it was actually my second major. Um, I did theater, arts, and philosophy. And, uh, and yeah, really, it was about the community. You know, you meet some amazing friends in both LARP and theater. So you said um, theater was a, a part of your life as well. So LARPing is improvisational theater mixed with sport. When you break it down, that's ultimately what LARPing is. When I went to college, I, you know, became a theater major and I learned all sorts of um, storytelling tricks and um, special effects tricks, makeup tricks, you know, things like that. But I want to I, I want to stay in the, the, the realm of college a little bit and and just like, I guess, ask you how the you, you felt your social scene changed. Definitely during uh, college, I started taking a step back from LARP around that time. Hmm. Why? Uh, mostly the distance. I didn't have a car. It was harder to arrange transportation. I was a broke college student. And also uh, burnout's real. So in an average game, um, you, start, uh, you start facing burnout after about four years. So I, um, you know, my first game I played for three to four years, I started transitioning into a second LARP uh, around the end of high school. And then by sophomore year of college, um, you know, I, I wasn't feeling the same enjoyment that I, that I felt when I first started playing it. And, and to a certain degree, it felt more like a job. The switch from passion to obligation is something that a lot of people can relate to. Eventually, even the things that we love can burn us out. And this is exactly what John experienced. So he decided to take a step back and resist pushing through the exhaustion. If he wanted to play again and actually enjoy it, taking time away was the only option. It's a good reminder. Like, yeah, it's okay to take a break from something. If you're tired, take a breather and give yourself a chance to regroup. With luck, it won't be too hard to get in touch with your passion again. And in John's case, that's exactly what happened. I actually want to start going towards meeting your wife. Can you tell me a little bit about how you guys met? So in Avalon, which was the second LARP that I played, she played a character. She was a healer. You know, I, she was one of the, the bigger healers in the game. Uh, she ran the Healers Guild, uh, was super important. And I was, um, you know, this, this paladin character always needing healing. And um, so eventually she ends up joining my character's order and uh, we start hanging out. So she joins your guild and, and, you're, and, and what happens? It was, it was a little bit weird, actually. Again, we were just friends for the longest time. I proposed to her character in-game. We eventually got together. 
you know, we've been married in real life for uh, like 12 years. My question is like the in-game starting of the relationship. And then when do you when do you decide to like move it offline? When do you decide to move it into the real world or accept that this is the transition of emotion from a fantasy world to the real world? Well, I don't I don't think there's a good answer. Uh, you know, I stage managed a lot of shows, too. You know, I've done a lot of theater and I'll tell you that. You know, a lot of times the the leading male and the leading female, they'll get together too by the end of the play. It's just because of how many hours and the emotional intensity that you're spending with these people. You know, it makes sense that real, real emotions develop. So do you remember uh, the first time you guys started hanging out romantically outside of the game? Yeah, well, I mean, like a lot of times uh, it would be like guild hangouts. So we'd have these really epic puzzles and we would get together and have lunch and, you know, hang out and we'd work on puzzles. And it, I mean, they were like a family to me. So, you know, we'd be hanging out there. Slowly, but surely, the line between real life and the game blurred. John's LARP friends became his real family. And the in-game love he shared with Angela blossomed into a 15-year relationship and counting. But while his personal life grew, his time at Gettysburg College was coming to an end. And graduation meant that John had to find a job. He decided to move out to California, and like so many times before, moving meant finding new groups to befriend and new games to join. Uh, (laughs) Okay, so... You've met your community through these games. You you would meet your future wife through these games. When does when do you decide that it might be time to create your own? Well, honestly, if I never moved uh, to the West Coast, I don't think I ever would have. Uh, I moved out here. I tried a lot of the local games. Um, I was pursuing um, uh, acting, directing, film jobs. Like what kind of jobs? Um, well, at that time, I was trying to get into music videos. So that's primarily what I was trying to do. But honestly, and I still do it, I, I was taking any freelance jobs, you know, anything that would pay bills. When I came out here, similar sort of thing happened. Um, I knew no one outside of, uh, of the people that I moved here with. So, you know, I did what worked before. I looked up the local games and uh, they tend to be very accepting. And we all kind of have this one thing that binds us together, which is the love of the game. And so you reached out to these places and what did you encounter? Um, Well, like, I mean, they responded. Uh, The games were perfectly like nice and friendly to me, but um, there are a lot of different styles of LARP and not every style is suited for everyone, depending on what you're looking for. What exactly were you looking for? What I was looking for was the level of immersion that I had when I played Avalon. I was looking for the level of props and lore that I had before, the level of storytelling. I wanted to be able to go into an environment and and kind of get lost in the emotion of the scene that I was feeling. And I, I also wanted some really heart-throbbing, emotionally exhilarating combat scenes too, because I'm mostly interested in the um the story elements there are amazing story aspects to your best friend just got killed in battle 
you know, uh, like you cry real tears when your fake friend, <laughs> like when your when your character's friend dies, you know, and they're fine in real life, and you know they're fine in real life, but at the same point, like you do feel the sense of loss. So you were looking for those those more story heavy, immersive games. You weren't finding any. No, um, the the games that I was finding tended to be pretty light on the combat side. Um, like there were some still great actors, there were some great costume designers, things like that. But in terms of the battles, I was never satisfied. And um, there were there were a lot of problems with the storytelling as well. And it wasn't that I necessarily had anything against the local games, but it was a situation where I felt like I could bring something to the table. I could provide something that the current LARP scene um, didn't have. Replicating the same level of immersion he had experienced in Avalon was a tall order. But John was up for the challenge. I mean, maybe it's just me, but doesn't this quest that John was about to embark on seem almost mythological? The name Avalon comes from the Arthurian legend. Supposedly, it's the magical island where King Arthur's sword Excalibur was forged. Now, John, who wanted to find a game with the perfect balance between all things, from combat to acting to storytelling to immersion, he was looking to create the Camelot of LARP games in Southern California. But for this first epic quest to have a successful ending, John needed to become a businessman first. How do you get a game together if you're new to California and you're looking for your own community and now you have to find a new one or create a new one? How do you even do that? Well, I had been playing in the local games for one to two years, you know, so I had made some friends in the local community and there came to be a point where I'm like, okay, I'm going to do this. And so I started put it working on a rule rule system and then I'm like, oh, I need some people to, to help me run the game. And so then I started, uh, you know, asking my friends like who might be interested in putting out feelers. And then as the game started developing and as the rule system started taking form and, you know, I discovered I kind of had a knack for it, like writing rules because I grew up in the in the environment. And then I was also a theater major. So like I started to implement like some of these story things in terms of how I was shaping the, the in-game lore of, of the world. What did it look like working with the other people on this project? Was it like a late nights around a table or something? So it involved me getting in my car, driving two hours to a friend's house. And yeah, we would hang out in the backyard around this little table and um, and we'd brainstorm and we'd just come up with these ideas. And most of my staff team at that time um, were kind of like friends of friends and they all lived in that area. So that's how it started. What was the first game actually like? Was it a massive success? No. Uh, to begin, I, I thought I knew what I was doing. I didn't. Uh, and that's okay. Because I definitely learned that no matter how much preparation you put in, there will be problems. And I mean, definitely try to prepare as much as you can. We prepared for a year before our first game. But even still, even putting that year in, um, we showed up and it was one of the worst rainstorms that California has ever had. 
It was thundering. It was raining. I bought maybe like four or five piles of wood. We went through it all, like just trying to keep people warm. We lost four or five tents that just got flooded from the rain. We had purchased uh, two 10 by 30 pavilion tents, basically for shade. The wind just picked one of those up, snapped it in half, and threw it away. That first night, I went to bed in tears knowing that that year of prep work was basically all for nothing, that I had spent a whole bunch of money that I basically didn't have. Everyone was miserable. Yeah, shivering under an open tent in wet, cold weather sounds pretty miserable. And while we all know what it's like to be dealt a bad hand, this was a rough blow for John. I imagine him standing there after a year of planning, the game falling apart around him, trying to push back a sense of defeat, trying to drown out that little voice saying, oh, hey, that thing you wanted? Yeah, you can't have it. But as he stood there, shaking in the cold and the rain, frost on the ground, John knew this wasn't it. This wasn't the end. At this moment, the confidence he'd gained through the game surfaced, along with the leadership skills he'd been practicing all his life. Now, with things busting at the seams, John knew he had to figure out a way to stitch it all back together. He had to find a way to save the game. try to salvage it yeah i mean the short answer is we did um how i remember us setting up this um we had a whole bunch of tarps and we kind of made this tunnel and at the end of the tunnel there was a uh i think we called her the oracle and the players basically got to get led by one of the ferrymen which is one of the the people that play the death game and they get to be led through like these these other realms to this place that we called the oubliette and their players were crawling through this makeshift tunnel and we waited till it was night so they could barely see what was going and tea lights are are flickering and uh you know we have creepy music going on and they go through and they solve all these traps and, and they get to the oracle and they're allowed to ask like one question about the future, one of the past, one of the present. And it was it was just a really cool experience. We also, when we were leading them, uh, we blindfolded everyone and everyone was holding on to people's shoulders as they were basically being very slowly walked over towards the mod site. And all they could hear was uh, a bell and just a single chime of this bell every few steps. And it just created this really, when you deprive uh, characters of one of their senses, whether it's hearing or sight or anything, it kind of makes the entire mod fresh and, and new again. I just, going back a little bit, because I don't think I, I really understood the moment where you, you thought everything was like crap. Were, were, were you hearing anything about what people thought of the game? What were you saying? What was the conversation you were having to yourself? Well, like Angela left, like my wife left Friday night. It was cold, so cold and miserable. She left sight, went back to our house and slept there. You know, you were asking how I knew. I knew, right? I, I didn't even need her to leave sight for me to know that. But like when I have the entire player base huddled in a tent shivering and no one wants to engage with the the enemy and all they're trying to do is get warm, 
you know, no one's having fun. <laughs> and so when you're in your tent that night, probably shivering yourself, what are you saying to yourself? What's the conversation you're having? I think a driving uh, motivation for myself my entire life is just this feeling of not wanting to let people down. And I felt as though I was letting my players down. I felt like I was letting my staff team down. And, uh, and that's a horrible feeling. We did everything we could do to amp up the fighting, especially during the day, once it was warm, once it wasn't raining. I think what really set us apart from the other games is our combat was so much more challenging than they were used to. So from their perspective, from the people's perspective who had only played the local games, who had never been experienced in a high threat LARP combat scenario, it was a culture shock. They didn't know what to do. And every fight, every player that pulled through felt important because they were needed to survive that fight. And a lot of people that went to that first game um, based on the weather and basically the experience that they received versus what they were expecting, uh, a lot of people didn't have fun and did not return. But the people that loved it couldn't get it from any, any other game in the area. And we just continued from there. It does seem a little counterintuitive to call success on a game that left a bunch of first-time players unwilling to return. But like John said, Twin Mask was a culture shock. Many players hadn't engaged on the level of emotional storytelling that he was determined to create. So if Twin Mask was going to be a sustainable LARP group, John and his team needed to invest in the emotional experiences of the players. And that meant things needed to start small. But it worked. And as their game drew more attention, John now had to take on the business side of running a LARP group. A lot of the limitations come down to the site that you rent. So when we started, we had maybe 20 players. Uh, you know, we didn't even have NPC shifts at that point. So the staff team was playing every monster you're fighting. Uh, we we're running ourselves ragged, you know, putting on a good show. But as we would grow, we would ultimately reach the limitation of whatever campsite we were using. So you rent Boy Scout camps, you rent um, uh, national parks, uh, you rent whatever you can, but there's still going to be a maximum parking. You know, if you're up in the mountains, they probably don't have a massive parking lot. So the first campsite that we, we rented could maybe support like 20 to 40 people. Then once you reach that 40 point, now you need to, to look for a new home. And that seems to be one of the major challenges that every LARP experiences, at least if you grow or shrink, uh, you need to find a, a site that can handle that. Whatever is the hardest is going to have to do with, you know, your skill set. For me, the storytelling was never difficult. The role creation was never difficult. Uh, telling interesting, compelling stories is the easy part. The hardest part for me uh, tends to be more the business angle or dealing with uh, people, like the community aspect. Like when you're friends with everyone, what do you do when you, you know, need to raise the cost of events? We've raised the price of our event $10 in 10 years. For me, a lot of that is because I wanted to make it affordable for the high school me. You know, for the kid in high school who is trying to build confidence. Um, but at the same time, you need to pay for, you know, bigger and better things. You need to pay for, like, again, we rent a renaissance fair right now. Throughout the United States, it's a common dream for a lot of us to own our own land, own our own property, build and create, you know, something of our own. 
you've built it up to the point where it is now over the last 10 years. What would you say is your thing that you're most proud of? My staff team, definitely. I would put my staff team against any in the world. They're not only some of the most talented, most creative, most amazing humans in the world, but um, they're basically family, you know? And everyone puts their heart and soul into the game, and you can tell, you know? When you see a prop that's made by one of our staff members or an entire lore book, and it, it could be a full book, you know? It could be 40 pages that we write. And when we release it into the world, we might never see that again. You know, we don't even necessarily see the full impact that our players have, but it's important to us. I'll give a moment of just being proud of my community. This was between games. We have a Discord channel where people will frequently hang out. You know, there's like a, a gaming chat in there. There's also a, a chat if you want to do like text role playing or whatever. And it's really just to tide people over between events. Well, one of our players, um, I think they were fairly new even. They get on there and they, um, they basically say that they're going to kill themselves. And my players who are in that group, they keep talking to him. Meanwhile, other players contact us, get his emergency contact information. We're able to contact the parents and send um, basically the, the parents and emergency responders to help. And uh, yeah, so my players were involved in helping to save that kid's life. Unfortunately, a lot of people out there especially in these more subculture groups, you know, we go through a lot. We all have baggage, things that we've overcome, that we've experienced. Some of the, the trauma that we deal with is, is very real. And this is a community that can potentially support you in your times of need. And I'm not saying that you should use it like a crutch or, or anything like that, but I am saying that that is a moment that I was very proud of my community. In that one frightening moment, John's team was able to do something that without an established community would have been impossible. It's the same extended hand that reached out to John too all those years before. Back when he was just a nerdy kid at the game store seeking sanctuary from the bullies at school, it was LARP that provided the foundation to develop courage and confidence, both in the game and in life. Yeah, the game's fun, intense, and at times goofy, but it's not all about that. It's about forming a community one that's there to serve as unwavering support in incredibly difficult times. And while I agree that LARP shouldn't be used as an alternative to professional help, it's still a tool that can be used for tackling real-world situations. And there's no doubt about it. Saving a life is a huge deal. And it's moments like these that inspire Twin Masks' hope for the future. Give me an idea of where Twin Mask is today. So as of today, it's a giant question mark. This is our first event back since quarantine. So I have a lot of ticket sales from two years ago. I have a lot of new players and I have no idea who's going to show up and what our total is going to be. But my estimate is that this event will be between three to 400 people. If everyone shows up, it's going to be more, but I, that's my estimate. Hopefully, we continue to have, you know, success, uh, continue to work with great artists and great people, and hopefully we continue to grow. What are you most looking forward to in the future? For me, it's always Sunday. 
Every event starts on a Friday and Sunday after, you know, when everyone wakes up and it's time to go home and you know you can't screw anything <laughs> up, you know, like everything that you had to do is done, accomplished, your car is packed and you get to go home, take a shower, fall asleep. That's everything. That Sunday evening after an event, slippers on, tea brewed or whatever else represents a job well done for John. Not only does it mean that another weekend at Twin Mask was a success with hundreds of people letting their imaginations run wild, but it also signifies another opportunity for connection. And while John faces some big question marks right now, I get the sense that communities like these will always find a way back to each other, in part because that connection is so strong. It's something that you can feel when you're there, a sense of community that permeates every second of your time there. But what ends up making this experience so unique is that this feeling doesn't leave when you walk out of the game. It becomes embedded in you, if only slightly, as you begin to uncover another part of yourself. I remember after the interview getting prepped to enter the game. I put on a black cloak, a mask, and grabbed a sword. I was with our lead editor, Adrian, and I remember thinking, this is goofy and kind of fun. But then something shifted. Then we went out into town. We saw people talking in accents and joking around as if they were knights, lords, ladies, and elves. And the weirdest thing is that I actually started to believe it. There was this point. The imperial dragon begins crumbling before your eyes as it dissipates. It looks in this direction. But I summon spirit! Adrian and I came out as a group of shades, these ghost-like creatures, and we confronted a bunch of knights and elves. I remember we were circling them with our weapons. I actually felt a pang of fear, a bit of adrenaline. The story wasn't just coming alive. I was coming alive as this new character. I was digging into these emotions of anger, fear, and adrenaline that you don't get the opportunity or medium to feel much in the real world. It was thrilling. Like John said, it isn't about escaping, it's about digging in deep and facing something out of the ordinary. We're often told to take off the mask, but what I've learned from John is maybe the only way to do so is by first putting one on. Thank you so much for listening. If you haven't already, make sure to subscribe, rate the podcast five stars, and share with a friend. If you have any questions or comments, DM us at Finding Founders Podcast on Instagram, LinkedIn, or Facebook. Finding Founders is produced and hosted by me, Samuel Don. Our chief of staff and operations is Jessica Lin. Our audio editing team lead is Adrian Tapia. Support from Irene Van Burkle, Matt Fernandez, Nay Buchanan, Sophia Donner, Maura Lynch, Zoe Maddox, Ashley Jimenez, Michael Chung, Nicholas Guzman, Aaron Devereaux, Sanessa Gisley, and Lois Choi. Our outreach and research lead is Kenny Ong, with support from Sarah Hobson, Melody Sopani, Cherise Tan, Jake Wiley, Ibadat Rai, and Mecca Shelton. Our writing team lead is Elizabeth Bowen, with support from Abigail Azardia, Elise Caldwell, Jake Wiley, Jordan Ortiz, and Sanessa Gisley. Our design team lead is Shruti Ramanand, with support from Sohail Amatya. Tiffany Dane, Jonathan Ross, and Diana Marie Kendaza. To see more of what we're up to, subscribe to our newsletter at findingfounders.co. Thanks again for listening and see you next week.